Amen. All right, well, we're there in uh, Job chapter number 17. And of course, on Wednesday nights, we are making our way through the book of Job, taking one chapter at a time. And tonight we continue with this conversation between Job and his three friends. If you remember, Job is going through a series of rounds with his friends, Eliphaz and Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite. And uh, he started to respond to Eliphaz, which was the beginning of round two in the previous chapter. And in this chapter, Job continues uh, to respond to that. And this chapter is a pretty uh, short chapter uh, in this book, uh, only 16 verses. Not super short, but it, it, it's not like some of the other ones that have 36 verses or 25 verses or things like that. And uh, some of the things that are said in this chapter are very similar to things that have already been said in previous chapters, and uh, so I want to just point out a few things to you, and we don't have to be very long tonight. Uh, Like I said, there's not a lot of verses in this chapter to cover. What I would like to just kind of bring to your attention in this chapter of Job uh, 17 is two observations and two applications, Uh, two observations that I see in this chapter and two applications um, that we can gather. So I'll give you the observations to begin, and the first one is that of Job's friends. And of course, this is the theme uh, in, in many of these chapters. There's just this going back and forth between Job and his friends, and they've insulted him, he's insulting them back. And I want you to notice just several things he says here about his friends. In verse 1, he says this, My breath is corrupt, my days are extinct, the graves are ready for me. And we're going to come back to verse 1 in a minute. Notice verse 2, Are there not mockers with me? So again, he's looking at his friends, and, and he says, Are there not mockers with me, and doth not mine eye continue in their provocation? So uh, a provocation or to provoke someone is to deliberately try to annoy or to um, make them angry. And this is what Job is saying about his friends. He, he's saying his friends do not help the situation. They're not helping him. They are mockers, and they are provoking him. They are not... Uh, trying to care for him. They're not trying to comfort him like we talked about last week, but they're simply making fun of him and they're mocking him and they're kicking him when he's down and they are provoking him. Uh, So he says that his friends are not helping the situation. Then he says this about his friends. He says that they don't understand. If you notice verse 3, he says, lay down now, put me in a surety with thee. Who is he that will strike hands with me? And we're going to come back to verse 3. Uh, later on as well, but I want you to notice verse 4, for thou hast hid their, uh, hid their hearts from understanding. And the there there is referring to Job's friends. Job is looking at his friends. He just got done saying, are there not mockers with me? Does not mine eye continue in their provocation? Then he says, for thou hast hid their heart from understanding. And Job is now speaking to God, and if you remember, we notice that throughout the book of Job where he references God or communicates to God, and he's talking to God. Now it's like he's having a conversation with God about his friends while they're standing there. And he says about them, For thou hast hid their heart from understanding, therefore shalt thou not exalt them. So he's he's mocking them back, and he's insulting them back. He says his friends are not helping. He says his friends do not understand. Then skip down to verse number 8, if you would, just to kind of show you the different verses here where he references his friends. Then he basically says that his friends are not righteous. 
And again, you know, you might look at this and say, well, Job, you're being a little petty, but keep in mind that these are all the same things that they're saying to him as well. And uh, there's just this contention back and forth between him and his friends. In verse 8, he says this, upright men shall be astonished at this. So he, he's talking about the fact that you guys, and remember, because this is a continuation from verse 16. In verse 16, he says, miserable comforters are ye. He says, you're not doing a good job at comforting me. And now he says, upright men shall be astonished at this. He says, if an upright person saw what you were doing, they would be, the, the word there is astonied. Uh, we would pronounce that astonished. He said, they would be astonished at what is going on here. He says, the innocent shall stir up himself against the hypocrite. So he's saying, look, if, if there was an innocent person here, they would fight against you because you're being a hypocrite. So again, he's saying you're not righteous. He's saying, he's saying you're not righteous because if you were upright, you know, you, an upright man would be astonished at what you're doing, at the fact that you supposedly came here to comfort me and you're mocking me and you're provoking me. You're not innocent. Notice verse 9. He says, the righteous also shall hold on his way. And I believe here that Job is actually referring to himself. And he, cause, cause they keep telling him, Job, just admit it. Job, just, you know, tell us the truth. You know, you're a sinner. What have you done? Why is God doing this to you? And he's saying, look, you're not upright because if you were upright, you wouldn't be doing this. In fact, the upright man shall be astonished at this. He says, you're not innocent, but he says, I am righteous and the righteous also shall hold on his way. And he that hath clean hands shall be stronger and stronger. And I want, I, I, I want to give you just a real quick uh, cross reference, if you would, uh, here. And keep your place right there in Job 17. If you want to go with me to the book of James in the New Testament, towards the end of the New Testament, you have the book of Hebrews, James, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. James chapter number uh, 3. And if you notice there in Job uh, uh, 17 verse 9, he says, The righteous also shall hold on his way, and he that hath clean hands shall be stronger and stronger. In James chapter number 3, we uh, see this in verse number 8. The Bible says this, Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. And then he says these words, Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. In the Bible, we see this idea of cleansing your hands um, as a, a synonym or as a description of somebody that is living a righteous life. If you're living a life... That is correct. And that's what Job is saying here when he says, The righteous also shall hold on his way, and he that hath clean hands shall be stronger and stronger. Now you say, well, why would somebody with clean hands get stronger and stronger? Well, in James chapter 3, we're told, Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. The Bible says when you draw nigh to God, when you take a step towards God, God takes a step towards you. Now, of course, if you're saved, we understand the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. He'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. But as far as your closeness or your relationship to God, the Bible says this, draw nigh to God and he'll draw nigh to you. And what is that process? What will that process do? Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Here's what the Bible teaches. When you take a step towards God, God takes a step towards you. And when you take another step towards God, God takes another step towards you. And the closer you get to God, the closer you get to God, the more you start realizing you've got to clean your hands a little bit. 
Because, you know, people come to a church like this church, and they, before they come here, they, you know, you stop them on the street and ask them, you know, uh, do you know for sure if you died today on your own way to heaven? And they're going to say, well, I think I'm a pretty good person. And then you let them sit under this preaching for a few weeks, and they're like, man, I'm kind of a lousy person. I, you know, I've got a lot of issues, and I've got a lot of things I've got to deal with. But look, it's normal. The closer you get to God, the more you realize, I've got to clean my hands. But you know what Job says? Job says this, the closer you get to, get, you get to God, the stronger you get. Job 17.9, the righteous also shall hold on his way. And he that hath clean hands shall be stronger and stronger. Notice verse 10. Again, he references his friends. He says, but as for you all, do ye return and come now? Now notice what he says. For I cannot find one wise man among you. And again, he's just... You know, taking jabs at them and saying, none of you are wise, none of you are righteous, none of you are pure. He says, I mean, he's looking at his friends and he said, I can't find one wise man among you. So we see this observation, which is an observation we've seen throughout the book, about Job's just conflict between him and his friends, this going back and forth between him and his friends. And you know, obviously Job was a righteous man. The Bible says he was an upright man. At the end of the book, God vindicates him. God blesses him. Obviously, Job was a great man of God. We all look forward one day to meeting Job in heaven. Uh, But, you know, I will say this about Job. He was not a sinless man. When the Bible says he was perfect, it means that he was balanced. It means that he was complete. It does not mean he was without sin. The Bible says that sin is a transgression of the law. And here we see, and I won't know that there's necessarily a sin on Job's part, but I'll say this, it's, it's not a very flattering uh, 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 thing about Job here when we see him kind of just being real petty with his friends. You know, they call him unrighteous, he calls them unrighteous. They say he's a fool, he says, you know, I cannot find one wise man among you. But we see this observation uh, with his friends. Then, a second observation we see in this chapter is that of Job's hopelessness. And of course, Job is in a very dark place in his life. He's in a very low place in his life. He's in a place in his life uh, where things are just not going well. And we see that he's uh, very hopeless. Notice verse 1, he says, My breath is corrupt. My days are extinct. The graves are ready for me. And, and what he's basically saying is, I, I'm just ready to die. Uh, I wish that I would die. He says, I, I'm ready to just... And it's not this triumphant thing like when Paul said, uh, you know, I'm now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. It's more of like, just put me out of my misery. Uh, he's not in a good place in his life. Skip down to verse 5. He says this, He that speaketh flattery to his friends, even the eyes of his children shall fail. He hath made me also a byword of the people, and aforetime I was a tabret. So here Job tells us, you know, not only has he lost all the things we know he's lost, not only has he lost his ten children, who have died, not only has he lost all of his wealth when he was a very wealthy, successful man, not only has he had his wife turn on him and tell him to curse God and die, not only did he have his three friends turn on him and they are miserable comforters and they're, they're, they've mocked him, but here we see another uh, aspect of Job's suffering and it is that he has lost his reputation, and he has become, what Job says here is a byword. He says, he hath made me also a byword of the people, and aforetime I was a tabret. He says, aforetime, he says, there was a time when I was a tabret. What's a tabret? It's a musical instrument. He said, there was a time 
when people heard my name, they heard the name of Job, and they, they thought it was like hearing music. It was a, a beautiful thing. It was a great thing. But he says, now, when they use my name, it's a byword. Now, what, what's a byword? A byword is a word, it's a name that has become a, a word that is used in a negative way. It becomes synonymous. It's when somebody's name becomes synonymous with something negative or evil or bad, and that name becomes the, the, the adjective to provide, to, to, to describe that action. Here's an example of a byword that, that we would be uh, familiar with. You know, the name Benedict Arnold, right? If somebody's a traitor, if somebody turns on you, you know, you might hear somebody say, oh, don't be a Benedict Arnold. And his name has become a byword, right? Uh, because of what he did, his name has become synonymous with the act of being a turncoat, of being a traitor. That's what Job is saying. Job is saying, my name is a byword. Uh, you know, now, you know, people, when, when something bad happens to someone and it's their fault, you know, when something bad happens to someone and it's a result of their sin, people say, ah, oh, you know, you're just a Job. And, and this is something that hurt Job because Job was an innocent man. Job had not sinned. And he says, he has made me also a byword of the people and aforetime I was a, a tabret. And then notice, we see this hopelessness of Job. Verse 7, mine eye also is dim by reason of sorrow. And all members are as a shadow. Skip down to verse number 11. Notice what he says. My days are past. My purposes are broken off. And this is a a, a bad place to be in life when you have no purpose. He says, my purposes are broken off. He says, every, every, every purpose I used to have, everything that would get me out of bed, everything that motivated me uh, to, to live and, and to do, he says, all of that's been taken away. My purposes are broken off, even the thoughts of my heart. They change the night into day. The light is short because of darkness. If I wait, the grave is mine house. I have made my bed in darkness. Notice verse 14. He says, I have said to corruption... And, and corruption here is being used, in, the way you and I would use this word would be decay. Like a, a, a corpse, a carcass that's laid uh, in the ground begins to decay. He says, I have said to corruption, thou art my father. He says, to the worm. And again, the idea is of death. Because you put a body in the ground and the worms begin to eat that body and it begins to corrupt and decay. He says, to the worm, thou art my mother and my sister. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, you know, I've embraced death like I've embraced my family. And again, this is not a positive thing. This is not a good thing. This is Job in a very low place in his life, in a very hopeless place. He says, I've said to corruption, thou art my father. To the worm, thou art my mother and my sister. Then notice verse 15. He says, and where is now my home? hope. As for my hope, who shall see it? So again, we see this observation of Job uh, that he is very hopeless. He's in hopelessness and he might just be, you know, at at the lowest part uh, in this book, you know, and it's hard to really tell that. The interesting thing and just kind of a takeaway from that is that you can be here. You can be in chapter 17 of the book of Job and just, and, and it just seems like, and it just looks like 
you know, uh, life is just, there's no hope, there's no reason to live, there's no purpose for life. And I don't like to move forward in the book of Job very much, but I would like you to go to Job 42 just real quickly. Job chapter 42. And in verse 12, the last book of the Bible, I just want you to notice what the Bible says in Job 42 and verse 12. The Bible says this, So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 she-asses, and he had also seven sons and three daughters. And I want you to notice that this, this, uh, this story ends with a happy ending. Look at verse 15. And in all the land were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job, and their father gave them inheritance among their brethren. After this lived Job in 140 years, and saw his sons and his sons' sons, even four generations. So Job died being old and full of days. And here's all I want to tell you, is sometimes in life you find yourself in chapter 17, and you're just kind of like, there's no hope. I might as well be dead. I've got nothing to live for. There's, you know, it's, it's all bad. And just realize that not that many chapters later, God could turn it all around. And God could really do a work. And, you know, I feel like one of the themes that we see in the Bible, especially in the Old, these Old Testament uh, saint stories, whether it's Esther or whether it's Job or whether it's Joseph, is that God is always working on the other side. So sometimes you might find yourself in chapter 17 and just don't give up. Don't lose hope. Realize that there's another chapter and another chapter. And eventually you might find yourself at the end of the book and realize that it wasn't so bad after all. So we see these two observations. The observation of Job's friends and then the observation of Job's hopelessness. What I'd like to do also is show you two applications, two things that we can learn from this chapter, or things that can we, we can apply to our lives. The first one is found in verse number 3, and the Bible says this, Lay down now. This is what Job says to his friends. Put me in a surety with thee. Who is he that will strike hands with me? And here in this verse, Job asked his friends, and I believe he's being sarcastic when he says this, but he says, put me in a surety with thee. Now, what does that word surety mean? That S-U-R-E-T-Y, it's an older word that we don't use very much today. But the definition of the word surety means a person who takes responsibility for another's performance of an under, uh, of an undertaking. For example, they're appearing in court or for the payment of a debt. So surety is when someone basically vouches for someone, but it's not just like a recommendation where I I recommend you for this job and I vouch for you. A surety is where you actually take financial responsibility for someone appearing in court or for someone uh, paying a debt. And the, the biggest way that we would apply this today in our culture would be, you know, what you would call like co-signing, right? Somebody wants to go get a house or somebody wants to get into an apartment. Somebody wants to buy a vehicle or they want to buy some other, you know, motorcycle or whatever. And, but they can't get approved to get into that house or get into that apartment or buy that vehicle. So they need someone else to basically come alongside and sign their name and say, well, I'm going to take responsibility and make sure that this person actually, you know, that you're going to get paid. If they don't pay 
And look, I don't think a lot of people realize this about co, you know, co-signing. When you co-sign, it's not just you saying, hey, he's a good guy. It's you saying, if they don't pay, I'll pay. And, and here, that's what Job, Job is sarcastically saying this to his friend. He's saying, who's going to co-sign for me? Who's going to vouch for me? You know, and none of them want to do it, of course. Put me in a surety with thee. Who is he that will? And notice, when you see this word surety throughout the Bible, you'll often see it associated with this, these two words, strike hands. And the word strike hands has to do, it's, it's our idea of like shaking hands. It's of going into making a deal. So he says, lay down now, put me in a surety with thee. Who is he that will strike hands with me? And we see that Job brings up this, this concept of surety. And this is a concept that comes up a lot in the scriptures. And I want to show you, just give you an application from that. Go to the book of Proverbs, if you would. You're there in Job. So you're just going to go past the book of Psalms into the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 17 and do me a favor, when you get to the book of Proverbs, put a ribbon or a bookmark there because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. But let me just show you a, a couple of things. And here's the application. Two observations, two applications. Here's the first application. Don't be surety. The Bible teaches against being a surety for someone. And the Bible says a lot about it, especially the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 17, look at verse 18. Notice what the Bible says. A man void of understanding. Now, don't miss that phrase. That phrase, you know, packs quite a punch. A man void of understanding means someone who has no understanding. Someone who doesn't understand what they're doing. A man void of understanding striketh hands and becometh surety. What does that mean? They guarantee or take responsibility for in the presence of his friends. And look, I realize we live in a society where people co-sign and all those things, and I'm not, I'm not trying to beat up on you, or, you know, if you've co-signed, or I've had people co-sign for me in the past when I didn't know, you know, the Bible taught this or whatever. And, and I'm not trying to beat up on you, but I'm trying to teach you the Bible. And look, the Bible says, a man void of understanding striketh hands and becometh surety in the presence of his friend. God says, it's not a smart thing to do. God says, you're void of understanding if you strike hands, if you become a surety, if you take responsibility for somebody uh, financially saying, yes, put the, give them that house or give them that apartment or give them that vehicle or give them that uh, uh, whatever it is they're trying to get, you know, and if they don't pay you, I will pay you. God says, that's not smart. That's somebody that's void of understanding. Go to Proverbs chapter number six. Proverbs chapter number six. Look at verse number one. Proverbs chapter number 6 and verse 1. Notice what the Bible says. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 1. My son, if thou be surety. And again, that word means the idea is to, to co-sign. The idea is to take responsibility for somebody, uh, for something, for payments financially. He says, if thou be surety for thy friend, if thou hast, notice, notice how these words are coming up, stricken thy hand, right? You made a deal. You shook on it. You said, yeah, if they don't pay, I'll pay. With a stranger, notice these words, verse 2, thou art snared. Now, what is a snare? A snare is a trap. It's like when there's a net 
on the on the ground with a trip wire and and an animal uh, uh you know presses that wire and the and the net comes up uh, around them he says look if thou be surety for thy friend if thou hast stricken my hands with a stranger thou art snared he says you're caught you're trapped notice with the words of thy mouth thou art taken with the words of mouth. Why? Because when you co-sign or when you provide surety, when you sign to get them into that apartment or get them into that house or get them into that car, he says, you're setting a trap for yourself. This is not a good thing. You say, why? And you know, I, I've taught a lot about finances over the years and I've done financial series and studied a lot on the Bible uh, in regards to finances. And this surety thing is something I've thought a lot about because it's, it's always kind of confounded me a little bit. Because I always thought, you know, someone co-signing for someone, that's a good thing. That's a nice thing to do. You know, why is God against us being surety or co-signing for someone? But let me just give you kind of two thoughts in regards to why it's, well, let me give you three thoughts in regards to why it's a bad idea to be surety. Number one, because the Bible says it. Period. End of story. You know, the conversation can finish there and we should move on. Um, you know, it doesn't matter if you and I understand why God says what he says. You're smart if you just do what God says. But let me give you some, some you know, logical reasons as to why uh, being a surety is not a good idea. Here's why. Because there is a very high likelihood that you will end up paying for that. Look, if your buddy, if your friend says, I really want to buy this car, but can you co-sign for me? Not smart. You say, why? Because there is a very good likelihood that you're going to pay for that. Look, please understand this. Banks, banks are in business to lend. Do you understand that? Banks don't make money off of your checking account. Your little $15 fee and all your overdraft fees because you don't know how to budget. You know, that's just, you know, that's just icing on the cake for them. The way that banks make money the reason that banks take your money and, 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 and keep your money is, is not because there's not like a vault with all your money in it and it's got, you know, a little, there's a little canister that has your name and all your money's in there. You know what they do with your money? They take your money and then they go and lend it. They invest it and they make money off the interest. Banks make their money by lending. For that reason, banks want to lend. They want to give out loans. They want people in debt. They want you to pay interest. And I'm not preaching on finances, but let me just say this. It's not in your best interest to pay interest. Interest makes everything, you know, that car you you bought brand new, you're going to pay like five times the worth of that car and three times the worth of that house. And, and look, paying interest is not in your best interest. And if you've got debt, you know, try to get out of debt and, and, and all of that. But look, the point is this. Banks are looking for people to lend to. In fact, they spend millions of dollars every year in advertising to find people to lend to. That's what they want. Banks have sophisticated systems and algorithms to determine how much of a risk someone is or how, uh, and how likely they are to default on a debt. So look, when the bank wants, when the bank wants to lend to people, because they make interest off of lending to people, and they've got these sophisticated systems and algorithms, because they're not stupid, 
They, they've, got to, they've got to land and invest, but they've got to minimize the risk in the process. They've got these systems and algorithms that determine how likely someone is to actually pay that debt. And then the bank says, yeah, you know what? We're, we're spending millions of dollars trying to find people to give loans to, but we're not going to give one to you because you're too much of a risk. Our sophisticated algorithms have determined that you're not worth the investment, then look, if the banks aren't willing to lend to somebody and they are requiring, you know, grandma to, to say, I will pay the bill for my grandson, you know, you know why they're requiring that? Because they don't think grandson's going to pay the bill. And it's because they don't believe that that person will probably default on, is going to pay that loan. They believe that person is going to default on that loan. And if you co-sign, they do uh, that responsibility. Look, legally, that responsibility, forget what the Bible says. Well, don't forget what the Bible says. Always, never forget what the Bible says. But, you know, aside from what the Bible says, legally, that responsibility uh, lands on your lap. So here's what I'm saying. If the bank says, yeah, you know, we're trying to give credit cards to me. I mean, banks set up booths at colleges and are trying to get, you know, 18-year-olds in debt and, and all sorts of craziness. And they look at somebody and said, yeah, not you. Just there's some wisdom there in saying, yeah, I'm probably not going to co-sign for you. Look at Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 15. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 15. The Bible says this, Proverbs 11 and verse 15. He that is surety for a stranger shall smart for it. That's an interesting phrase that our King James Bible uses. The word smart has multiple definitions, and there's a definition being used here. You and I, when we think of the word smart, we think of the word intelligent. But there's another definition, a completely different definition for the word smart, that is a, a, a way we, use, we don't use the word very much in our uh, modern uh, way of speaking, but the way that the King James Bible is using that word smart there, it's using the definition that the word smart means to pay a heavy or stringent penalty. So here's what the Bible says. He that is surety for a, strange, uh, for a stranger shall smart for it. He that is surety for a stranger shall pay a heavy and stringent penalty for it. And he, hath, uh, and he that, notice these words, he that hateth Shortship is short. I just love the, the, the play on words there. It's like, oh, you know, we need you to be surety. What does that mean? You're going to be our security that this loan's going to get paid. God says, you want security? Stay away from surety ship. By the way, you want security? Stay away from debt. You want security? Stay away from interest. Why? Because it's not in your best interest to pay interest. So, you know, the, the, the main reason, the obvious reason why it's God doesn't want you to co-sign and to, you know, pledge and to be the responsibility for somebody financially who can't get approved for that car, house, loan, motorcycle, jet skis, whatever. The main reason that God doesn't want you to do that is because if they can't get approved, by people who are in business of approving everyone they possibly can, there's a very good likelihood they're not going to pay that bill and you're going to get stuck with it. You're going to be snared with the words of thy mouth. You're going to be caught in that trap 
and you're going to be smart for it. And not smart in a good way. Smart in a pay heavy and stringent penalties for it. And that's why the Bible says, he that hated suretyship is sure. Go to Proverbs 22. Look at uh, verse 26. Proverbs 22 and verse 26. And you say, yeah, but what about, what about the situation where, you know, it's a responsible young lady, it's a responsible young man, I know they're going to pay the bill, you know, is it wrong to co-sign for that, you know, for that individual? And look, I, I'll tell you, my wife and I, we got married when we were 18 years old, we were those responsible 18-year-olds. We weren't idiots like a lot of 18-year-olds are today. <laughs> Um, you know, we, we were responsible and we worked and, you know, and, and, and we paid our bills and we budgeted and all that. So, look, I understand that. But at the end of the day, you know, God still says, don't do it. And, and you say, well, what if you co-sign for someone who's a responsible person? They're going to pay their bills. You know, what's wrong with that? Well, again, see point one, because the Bible says it. That's why. Uh, point two, because there's a good chance that they're not going to pay it. You say, but what if they are going to pay it? Then what's wrong with it? Okay, well, Proverbs 22, look at verse 26. Notice what the Bible says. Be not thou one of them that striketh hands, or of them that are sureties for debt. So look, God specifically said, He said, I don't care if you have a good reason for it. I don't want you to do it. Be not thou, sounds like a command. Be not thou one of them that strike hands, or of them that are sureties for debt. You say, well, what's wrong? With just, you know, uh, here's my, you know, uh, a, a young couple, here's my, my son and, and daughter-in-law, they just got married, or my, you know, here's my daughter and son-in-law, they just got married, or here's my, you know, son, just graduated college or graduated high school, here's my daughter, she just, you know, uh, graduated high school. What's wrong with me just signing something and saying, yeah, I'll guarantee it, to get them in a nice house, to get them in a nice apartment, to get them in a nice vehicle. You know, have you ever thought about this? Maybe because you're stealing an opportunity for them to forge some character and to struggle a little bit. Maybe you ever thought about that? I remember when my wife and I first got married, we were 18 years old, we spent the first year and a half of our marriage eating on the floor. And I'm not complaining about that or throwing a pity bar, I'm just saying, you know, we, we ate on the floor, we didn't have a dining room table. We spent the first year and a half, we were so broke, we spent the first year and a half of our marriage, you know, saving up money. I remember when we went out and we bought a little wooden dining room table, it was $200, and we went out and we researched it and we, you know, figured out, you know, that's the one we want and how much, you know, extra money we had in the account and, and we, you know, went and saved it and, and bought it. And it was funny because we spent the first like year and a half of our marriage eating on the floor. You know, I would, I would eat in this little corner and my wife would sit next to me and she'd make dinner and we'd eat on the corner. Then when we bought our table, you know, it, it was just out of habit. I just felt like I should eat on the floor, you know. <laughs> Because it was just this habit that we'd, we'd had, you know, it was odd to, to eat at a table. You know, and here's the thing, you say, oh, well, you know, you could have had grandparents that bought that for you. Or you could have had your parents buy it for you. And here's the thing, I'm sure my parents could have bought that for, for us. But you know what? That might have been the worst thing they ever did for us. It forged some character in us to just not have some stuff. To not have some nice things. To have to save up. Maybe that's the reason that Pastor Jimenez and Miss Joanne can be in ministry and we're not a bunch of spoiled brats that need to live in a, you know, super fancy location and drive a super fancy car. Maybe you're stealing 
an opportunity from young people to help them struggle a little bit and develop some character. Maybe it's good to just, you know, have a car break down every once in a while. Maybe it's good to live in a ghetto area for a while. Maybe it's good, look, to help them develop the curse. You say, well, what's wrong with it? You know, if they're responsible and they're working, they're going to pay for it. Well, what's wrong with it is that God said it's wrong. That's what's wrong with it. But if you need a logical reason, maybe you're stealing an opportunity for them to develop some character. For them to not have this idea. Because, you know, when, when people, especially young people, just get anything, are never told no and get everything they want, you know what you develop in them? Pride. And you know what you develop in them is covetousness. And you don't want to have these young people that just struggle with being told no. You know, one, one of the things that we try to do with our children, look, we love our children, we try to say yes to them as much as possible, but every once in a while it's good to just tell your children no. Just for them to learn to say no. My wife and I, have, I've talked about this. When our kids begin to date, especially my daughters, when they begin to date, you know, and there's some young man that wants to date them, I'm just going to purposely say no to a bunch of stuff. Like, even if I say, yes, you can date, yes, you can whatever, can we? No. Just to see how they respond. You think I want my daughter marrying some brat that can't take no for an answer? That's the kind of guy that gets fired. You know what good employees do? They, they take no from their boss. But, but we, we've developed this generation of kids that have just never been told no by anybody. That's why they can't, they struggle in a church like this because they, you know, they meet a pastor for the first time with some hair on his legs that says, no! Amen. No, we're not going to do that. No, we're not going to go there. No, we're not going to have that music. Look, it's good for people to learn to struggle, to, to say no, to say no. Why don't you save up for that? Why don't, instead of going and getting a bunch of debt, so look, surety is something that we are told in the Bible is a negative thing. I remember my wife and I, we were at a meeting one time, and we heard this, this pastor, he was an IFB pastor, an old IFB pastor, but this guy pastored a mega church. He had like thousands of people in his church, and I remember he said this, uh, and, and we just kind of took note of this. this. This is a guy that, I mean, he had thousands of people come to his church. This guy made a you know, lot of money and was very super successful. He had houses in Hawaii and houses in Colorado and, you know, whatever. This guy, and, and he wasn't shy about talking about these things. He, he was the type of guy that, you know, the church would just buy him vehicles just, you know, for their birthday or for their anniversary, you know, because it was a super big, successful church. But I remember he said this, and I thought it was interesting. He said that when, he was, when his kids were growing up, he never allowed his children to drive a vehicle that was not at least 10 years old. And the reason for it is because he didn't want them to develop this, you know, pride, just, you know, I can have anything I want. I can just go and get into debt. Look, it's not good to live in debt, you, you would be better off. I just preached a sermon about being better. You'd be better off just being content. So God says he's against surety. That should be good enough. But we should not develop this idea. I remember years ago when this kind of became real apparent to me. We had a family. We had this young couple. When I say young couple, I'm talking about they're like 25, 26 years old. They ended up quitting the church as a result of just not anything we did. They just got super covetous. But I remember just trying to help this couple because they, he had this idea where he's like, I must live. Because his parents lived in this nice you know, neighborhood, like 45 minutes from here or whatever. And they lived in this really nice, beautiful home in this beautiful neighborhood. And he was really frustrated that he couldn't live in that neighborhood. He, and he, I remember he, he was telling me, like, I must live in that neighborhood. And he was trying to get his parents to co-sign for him and do all these things and, and, and lie about his income and try to make things seem like a different thing and seem like he was more scum so he could live in this neighborhood. And I remember just trying to help him, saying, like, 
why do you, why do you want to live in this neighborhood so bad? And he's like, I just have to. It's the neighborhood I grew up in. Bunch of whiners. And I remember just looking at him. I said, look, you're 25 years old. You want to live in a neighborhood that your parents live? You know, I asked him, how long have your parents lived in that neighborhood? Oh, they moved in four years ago. Your parents are like 65 years old. It took him 35 years to get there. And you want to get there right now? Why don't you just live in a modest home? Why don't you just act your wage and live in a place that you can afford? But this is not the culture we live in. But see, God, you know what God says? God says, don't help people get ahead when they're not ready to get ahead. Ah, that doesn't sound nice. That's what God says. So the first application we see here is don't be surety. The second application we see, keep your place there in Proverbs. We're going to come back to it. Go, go to Job 17. The second application is to, is to not fall for flattery. Don't fall for flattery. Job 17 and verse 4, notice what the Bible says. For thou hast hid their hearts from understanding. Therefore shalt thou not exalt them. Look at verse 5. He that speaketh flattery to his friends, even the eye of his children shall fail. So the Bible says here, and Job is saying, flattery is not a good thing. He that speaketh flattery to his friends, even his, the, the eyes of his children shall fail. Go back to Proverbs, if you would. Proverbs, uh, chapter number 20. And, you know, so the first application is, don't be surety. And the second application is, is uh, don't fall for flattery. You know, don't fall for flattery is because flattery is a negative thing. Now, let me just explain the difference. Because when, when, sometimes when you preach these things, you know, people think like, oh, never say anything nice about anybody, ever, you know. And, and here's the thing. There's a difference between a genuine compliment and cheap flattery. So when we're, talk, when we, when we're talking about flattery, we're talking about cheap flattery. We're not talking about a genuine compliment. There's nothing wrong with a genuine compliment. If you're, if you're truly appreciative for something that somebody did, you know, one of these guys gets up here and preaches a sermon and, and it was a genuine blessing to you, you know, um, then there's nothing wrong with expressing that to them and saying, hey, you know, I appreciate that sermon you preached or, you know, that's men's preaching night sermon you, you did. You know, this one part was really helpful to me. There's nothing in the world wrong with genuine, uh, genuine uh, uh, gratitude and, and, and uh, a genuine compliment. But flattery is not that. Proverbs 29, look at verse 19. Proverbs 29, verse 19. And you say, well, how can you tell the difference between a genuine compliment and flattery? Proverbs chapter 20, verse 19, notice what the Bible says. He that goeth about as a talebearer revealeth secrets... Therefore, meddle not with him that flattereth with his lips. So I want you to notice that God says, look, when you identify someone who's a flatterer, he said, don't meddle not. Don't, you know, just get involved with those people because flattery is a dangerous thing. Flattery is something you don't want to be. You say, well, how do you, how do you identify flattery? How do I know that um, what I'm being given is a genuine compliment versus cheap flattery? Or how do I know that I'm not giving cheap flattery, right? Because we don't want to be these types of people. You know, what's the difference? Well, number one, here's how you can understand the difference between genuine uh, compliment and cheap flattery. Number one, when it is disingenuine or insincere, then, um, then, then it's cheap flattery. And you say, well, how, how do I know if it's insincere? Okay, let me say it this way. If it's not true, then it's cheap flattery. 
You know, and, and we're not going to take the time to look at the verses tonight, but one of the main things that God talks about when he talks about flattery, he talks about the strange woman. You know, the woman that's hunting to commit adultery. And there are women like that in this world that just want to destroy homes and want to destroy families. And look, guys, if you're, if you're at work and some lady is, is giving you some, a genuine compliment and, and it's just disingenuous, you know, first of all, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be talking to, to women. You know, you should minimize uh, your contact with women at work. You shouldn't have friends of the opposite sex. You know, you should, all your friends, men, should be men. Amen. And all your friends, ladies, should be ladies. You know, I'll throw that in for free. But, you know, you say, well, I'm, I'm stuck working, you know, with this lady and whatever. Okay, but, but if she's giving you a compliment and it's just not true, it's insincere. And she's just like, have you been exercising? Man, look at those muscles. And it's like, come on. Now look, the fool says, well, actually, you know, when I grab for that Coke can, I have been kind of, you know, that's what a fool says. Do you understand that? When it's insincere, you say, well, how do you know if it's insincere? Ask yourself, is this true? Is this true? Man, you're a tall, dark, and handsome. It's like, I'm five foot four. <laughs> you know, so when it's disingenuous, when it's insincere, then just realize it's flattery. It's not a genuine compliment. Or when it's just exaggerated, over the top. Maybe it's true, but it's just this over-the-top exaggeration. You know, here's a genuine compliment. Because, you know... I get, we, we get a lot of compliments. My wife and I get a lot of compliments. I, when I travel, people are constantly complimenting our church and our ministry, and I appreciate it. It's, it's encouraging. You know, but here's a genuine compliment. Pastor Manos, I appreciate your preaching. It's really been a help to me. You know? and, and especially when they say, like, you know, that series on the family or that series on finances you know, really helped me in this area or whatever. Hey, that's a genuine compliment. When it's like, you are the greatest preacher that's ever lived. I mean, the Apostle Paul could have learned something from you. It's like, okay, come on. It's a little over the top, you know. When people are just walking up to you and they're like, you're the greatest preacher ever, and it's like the first time you preached at a res- uh, men's preaching night, you know, it's probably flattery. No offense. Um, but, it, you know, when it's just disingenuine, insincere, not true, um, then, then it's flattery. When it's just over the top, exaggerated. And by the way, let me just say this. Be careful about idolizing men. You know, it's really easy to watch somebody on YouTube and just think that they walk on water. You know, go live with them for a week and you'll realize we're all men. We're all sinful men. Um, so, you know, but when it's over the top exaggerated, then uh, it's flattery. So you say, well, what's wrong with it? What's the problem with flattery? Go to Psalm 12. Psalm 12. Here's what's wrong with it. Psalm 12 and verse 2, the Bible says this. They speak vanity, everyone with his neighbor. Notice these words. With flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. I want you to notice what the Bible says there. With flattering lips and with a double heart. Okay, so people who flatter you, you say, well, what's wrong with flattery? Even if it's cheap flattery, even if it's not true, what's wrong with it? Well, here's, here's, here's what you need to understand. Fool is that when people are flattering you, it's because they have an ulterior motive. With flattering lips and with a double heart, the Bible says. They're, they're lying to you. They're trying to butter you up 
because they have an ulterior motive. Now look, the ulterior motive may be, you know, as sinister as trying to destroy the church and destroy your family, or it may be not as sinister as they're just trying to sell you something. But either way, you're not that great, you know? You're not that great that just a random stranger at Walmart is going to walk up to you and say, I just got to tell you how beautiful you are. And by the way, I'm selling you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, often, they have an ulterior motive, so just realize that. Go back to Proverbs 26, if you would. Look at verse 28. And flattery is often used not only with people who have an ulterior motive, but it's used to set you up. Proverbs 26 and verse 28. Notice what the Bible says, Proverbs 26, verse 28. A lying tongue hath those that are afflicted by it. Notice these words. And a flattering mouth worketh ruin. You know what flattery, the person that's flattering you is trying to do? Whatever, they're, they're trying to ruin you. Proverbs 29, look at verse 5. Proverbs 29, verse 5. A man that flattereth his neighbor, notice these words. A man that flattereth his neighbor spreadeth a net for his feet. He's, he's, he's laying a trap for you. You know, you say, what's wrong with flattery? What's wrong with flattery is that the people who are giving you flattery often have an ulterior motive, and the people who are giving you flattery are, you know, trying to uh, set you up. They're spreading a net for your feet. Go to Job 17, if you would. Job 17. So look, flattery is something that, number one, we should not do. We should not be manipulators. We're manipulating people buttering them up, lying to them so we can get something out of them or get something from them. That, and, and again, there's nothing wrong with a genuine compliment. Just uh, uh, from the heart, man, I'm thankful that you, you know, have done this or you've done that. Nothing in the world wrong with that. I don't want you to walk away from this saying, I'm never going to say anything nice to anybody ever again. You know, but, but cheap flattery, just disingenuous, insincere, um, or just over-the-top exaggerated, that is not something that we as Christians should partake in, and that is something that we should be mindful of. And look, every once in a while, you need to just check yourself, and we need to check ourselves and realize we're not that great, you know, and, and they're probably trying to sell you something at best and ruin your life at worst. Job 17. Now, let me just give, you know, I, I, I've, heard, I've heard people uh, give this little disclaimer, and, and I agree with it, so I'll give the disclaimer. Here's, here's the... the, the um, you know, the, the, the exception. And not to flattery, but, but just to, to, to a, lot of, um, a lot of compliments is, of course, you know, married couples. You know, because if, if you read throughout the Bible, especially like you read the Song of Solomon, you see a lot of just compliments, you know. Solomon's just telling his wife just how beautiful she is. And, you know, he uses all these weird, you know, you look like a horse and I, you know, whatever. <laughs> I mean... I don't think, don't try that, you know, but uh, it worked back then, I guess, but, you know, and you, you see all these, you know, you see all this flattery, but the, the point is this, obviously between married couples, you know, compliments are good, you know, and if you're just like, my husband's just always fishing for compliments, or my wife's always just fishing for compliments, then, you, then stock up that lake with compliments, you know, make them feel appreciated, make them feel reverence, make them feel loved, because, you know, because you want them to be satisfied in, in the marriage and not be, you know, susceptible to getting that somewhere else. So obviously, and again, I'm not saying you should lie to your spouse. We're not talking about cheap, you know, disingenuine, 
you know, this is the greatest meal ever, and she made hamburger helper. It's like, come on, you know. But, um, you know, but just you want to give um, genuine compliments, and, and you should do that freely um, within marriage. Go to Job 17, and uh, look at verse 16. We'll finish up. Job. So, so two observations, two applications. What are the observations? First observation, we see Job's friends. They're just terrible. You know, they're just, there's not a wise man among them. And then we see Job's hopelessness. He's just down in the dumps. He's at a very low spot. Then we see two observations. The first observation is don't be surety. You know, God commands against it. That should be good enough. You know, but if, that, but if you need a better reason, because you'll probably end up paying the bill. And if you need another reason, it's because you might be stealing, you know, some struggle that people need to develop character. Uh, from their lives, and then, you know, don't be susceptible to flattery. And again, flattery versus sincere, genuine compliments is that flattery is disingenuous. It's not true, um, and, and it's over-the-top exaggerated. And look, when somebody's giving you flattery, they're, they've got an ulterior motive. They're trying to spread a net for your feet. They're trying to set you up. You'd be wise uh, not, to do, not, not to give in to that. Jobs have, and even compliments, you know, let me just say, somebody said this one time, a compliment, you know, it, it's like, it's like bubblegum. You know, if, if it's a genuine compliment, it's real. Even if it's a genuine compliment, you know, it, it's like bubblegum. Chew on it for a little bit, but then spit it out. You know, because you don't, you don't need to get a big head, you know. And, and it's interesting, uh, Pastor Anderson and I have talked about this, you know. Uh, I feel like God does these balances, you know, oftentimes, and you have to just keep, because, you know, you could go travel somewhere, go preach at um, a conference somewhere, and just get a lot of compliments, and have people just telling you, you know, that you've helped them, and, and genuine stuff, you know, and, and, and you can let that go to your heart, but then at the same time, you know, we get all these emails, and we get these phone calls, I just had a phone call uh, a couple of days ago, I, I was, I was going to, uh, I was waiting for somebody to call me, but I didn't know the number they were going to call from, because I usually don't answer my, my phone if it's not a call that I, a number that I know. So if you get a new number, you know, text me. Um, because, you know, and, but I was waiting for some, a call and I didn't know the number, so I was just answering all the calls and I just, I'm like, hello, and they're just screaming and yelling, cussing, you know, I'm that pedophile that you preached again. And I'm just like, man, it's been four years. Like, what in the world? But, you know, there's this balance of like, you go preach somewhere and people are like, you're, you're great, I appreciate you, and then you're, I hate you, you know. Um, so there's this balance sometimes that God allows you to have in ministry, so that's nice too. Job 17, verse 16, notice what the Bible says. They shall go down to the bars of the pit when our rest together is in the dust. So again, Job kind of ends this chapter in a low place, wishing for death, realizing that death will bring rest. And though that's true, just remember that Job's in a low place right now, chapter 17, but chapter 42 is coming. And sometimes life is like that. You know, it just doesn't seem like it's getting any better. It doesn't seem like it's going to work out. But there's a, God is always working on the other side. Let's go ahead and bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this chapter uh, in the Bible. Thank you for these observations and these applications, Lord. And I realize that we've probably, everyone here has probably co-signed for someone or been the uh, recipient of a, uh, a co-signer. And Lord, just help us to learn what the Bible says and to apply it to our lives from here on out. Lord, help us to be wise when it comes to flattery and to not be people that give cheap flattery. Lord, help us to, uh, to give genuine compliments from the heart. 
meant to encourage people, but help us never to be people who give cheap flattery. And Lord, thank you for the book of Job. Help us to always remember that sometimes things seem bad in chapter 17, but chapter 42 is coming. Help us to be mindful of that. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.